0: Just acknowledge um, longtime missionaries, David and Marsha, uh, that's in the service. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, let me ask you, I know this is impromptu, but if you wanted to come and say a few words, uh, you're more than welcome to. And uh, please... Yep. I got the privilege of getting to know um, the... David and Marcia through McElwain the previous church that's where I also met Gareth as well and so brother The and, and in the fellowship and also the It's the most wonderful ministry in the world. They, 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 they told me, i need to start thinking about retirement. So how do you think about retirement when you work with your grandkids and our But I'm also playing my grandkids. But I uh, pretty pray for the work in London. Go talk to If you will, please take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. Um, We've been, uh, we've started a study on the book of James called Biblical Spirituality for the Modern Church. And today uh, we're going to be looking at um, James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. We're going to slow down a little bit and work our way through the first chapter, and then we're going to take large chunks of uh, the passage after that in order to um, give uh, this first chapter the due that it, um, it requires. Uh, last week, if you remember, we looked at the call to biblical spirituality, and we looked at how God is calling all of us who name the name of Christ to spiritual maturity. That's what he's calling us to. And so today um, we have another aspect of trials that James wants us to look at that I think is so crucial for the Christian life. So hear now the word of God from James chapter 1 verse 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that he should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. Uh, Sorry, creatures. Um, This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be preached unto you. Amen and amen. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for how your word shapes us. Bless us now, O Lord. We've heard in song your greatness and your majesty. Help us now to see it and hear it from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. James begins the section by connecting two thoughts. And the thoughts that he's connecting is that of testing or trial and temptation. And the reason why James picks back up on this theme, remember, he begins the book with a set of imperatives that begin with trials. And these trials are designed to grow us spiritually. We're told that. And then in verse number 12, we see he picks back up on this theme of trials. But he adds something else. He adds temptation. Why would he do that? Well, to understand the connection of testing and temptation... I want us to go back to Daniel 3 and the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's it's one of those stories in the Bible that I go to often because it's so rich and so deep. Most of us remember that story of how Nebuchadnezzar builds this um, big uh, idol of himself and he commands everyone to bow down to him. And the entire narrative is structured in such a way that we see the connection between trial and temptation. The trial that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was experiencing was that they had to bow down and worship King Nebuchadnezzar. But in the midst of that trial, there was a temptation, the temptation to sin. And the whole narrative is constructed that way. Nebuchadnezzar could have just, when they disobeyed, he could have just grabbed them and threw them into the fire, but he didn't. The Bible says that what he did was they were called out in front of everyone. Right? They were the only ones called out. We know that Daniel, uh, you know, Daniel was around and Daniel didn't bow down, but specifically Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were called out. Not only that, the king came down and got in their face and said, you must bow down. And then to add more drama to the entire story, they stood by and watched the flames of the furnace being stoked hotter and hotter. And then on top of that, they are bound And then on top of that, they're grabbed and slowly marched towards the furnace. And this whole time, every aspect of the story, every aspect of what was happening to them, was designed to get them to worship King Nebuchadnezzar. And so the principle in the story is this, that every time you and I undergo testing and trials... Not only it's an opportunity for steadfastness and obedience, but it also creates an opportunity for sin. In that story, God was testing the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to grow them spiritually. But Nebuchadnezzar is like a Satan-like figure who was using this good trial by God as an opportunity to get them to sin and deny God. Look now at James chapter 12, James chapter 1, verse 12 through 18. This is exactly what James is talking about. James is saying, look, in the midst of every trial... We ought to maintain steadfastness because there's a crown of life. There's blessing and a crown of life that comes with it. But at the same time, James anticipates an objection. James anticipates because he knows something else is happening at the same time. What is happening at the same time is that whenever we go through a trial, we're tempted to sin. This is a basic aspect of the Christian life every single time. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time is I want to look at just two things. What happens when we remain steadfast in the midst of trials? Because it could go one of two ways. Every time we're presented with a trial, every time we're, we're presented with an opportunity for our faith to grow, it can go one of two ways. We either remain steadfast. Sin. What happens when we remain steadfast? That's the first thing I want to look at. James tells us in verse number 12, the first thing that happens is that we're blessed. Now, when we see the word blessed in our Bibles, especially in our modern day, we think immediately about happiness or material blessing or emotional state, our emotional state. Now, You and I have already looked at last week how trials are not fun. Trials are not good things. They're not fun. They're good from God's perspective, but from our perspective, trials are difficult. But hear me today. Anytime you love and serve the Lord, anytime you pursue after the things of the Lord, trials will come. Mark my words. Anytime you attempt anything new for God, anytime you make up your mind like, God, I am going to read my Bible, I'm going to pray, I'm going to pursue you, you can guarantee that a trial will come. I once heard a pastor said, wherever there's fire, there's smoke. That's so true. The fire is the good part, right? The fire is what warms you. The fire is what cooks your food. Fire is a good thing in that illustration. But the smoke is there. In other words, the smoke are the bad things. And make no mistake, in our congregation. The moment we start pursuing good things, the moment we start pursuing holy things, trials will come. There's some of you, when you became a young Christian, you knew this to be the case. You started on this journey with God, and what happened? Immediately, a trial came and tried to knock you off of course. That's how it is. Anytime we attempt anything for God, trials come. So what does blessed mean here if it doesn't mean happiness or our emotional state? Well, what blessed here means is to experience God's favor. And beloved, we experience God's favor, his grace, whenever we receive, number one, something that we are incapable of getting or doing something we're incapable of doing. And that's what we see in this passage. What are we incapable of doing as God's people? One thing that we're incapable of doing is remaining steadfast amidst trial. Now we see here in verse number 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Don't believe for one moment we can maintain steadfastness to God without his steadfastness toward us. By the way, isn't that the gospel? The reason why you and I can be steadfast amidst trials is because God's love and favor is steadfast toward us. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 25. By the way, I am finding that 1 Peter is an amazing parallel to the book of James. In the same way that 2 Peter is a really parallel to the book of Jude. So if you're looking for a Bible study, there you go. Study 1 Peter and James together, and then 2 Peter and Jude together. You'll be blown away. But listen to how J- uh, Peter connects the gospel to our trials. He says this, For when you have been called, for, for to this, you have been called. For to this means trials. You've been called to trials. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see what Peter is saying? Peter is saying that Christ's life left his suffering on this earth, left behind an example for us to follow. What is the example? Here's what Peter is saying, and here's what James is saying. When you and I suffer, we represent Christ in the world. When people see a suffering, they see Christ. And so we ought to suffer with grace in the same way Christ suffered for grace. That's the example. But he goes much deeper than that. The nature of our suffering has to do with the atonement. He said that Christ suffered to atone for our sins because you and I are incapable through our sufferings to atone for our own sins. And it's through Christ's suffering that our sins are atoned for, that gives us the ability to atone for our sin. Now, when I think of that glory that Peter says and that James is putting off, two things come to mind. The first thing that come to mind is this, that the suffering and the trials we experience in this life are light and momentary. Do you believe that? Theresa and I lived, um, when we were in Pensacola, we lived on the side of a couple that moved in after us. And shortly after they moved in, we found out that uh, the couple were godly people, but he had Alzheimer's. And after a while, he began to decline to the point where she couldn't care for him. And so through our friendship and reaching out to her, she required help from us. And so our family, for about a year and a half, would go over and help her care for her husband. We would help bathe him. We would help feed him. We would sit with him if need be. And I remember on one occasion, she was just defeated. And she looked at me and she said, Dennis, I know you're a pastor. Why is God allowing this to happen to us. My husband was a good man who served the Lord. Why would God allow him to suffer with this awful, terrible disease? And why would he allow me to watch my husband who was strong, who was godly, who loved the Lord, why would he allow me to watch suffer in this way? to clean him, to care for him. He could barely eat at this point. You know, and as a young pastor, man, for the longest time, she would ask me this, and she would indicate this, and I just struggled and reached for words until I realized this blessed truth in Scripture. And I told her one day that, you know what? You all will not be suffering like this for all eternity that this trial is light and momentary. And I reminded her that look to the cross because the cross is a symbol of Christ's suffering, Christ's pain, Christ's trial, so that you don't have to suffer like this as you are right now for all eternity. And it is light and it's momentary. And I'll never forget that after he died, we went to the funeral and I went back to check up on her a few weeks later because she had moved. And I knocked on the door and I went in and we started talking and she looked at me and she said, Dennis, I'm so thankful John isn't suffering anymore. And I'm so thankful that I don't have to watch him suffer anymore. And she said, thank God for Christ and the gospel. See, beloved, in the midst of trial, we need to understand the practical application of the cross and Christ's suffering. Because if we don't, if we don't, we will think that the suffering in this world is awful. We'll begin to think that the suffering of this world is beyond what we can bear. But every time we are in a mix of trials and suffering, we need to be reminded of the cross because of Christ's suffering. Our suffering, uh, number one, is not as bad, it's light, but also it's momentary, it's fleeting. But notice the other thing, too, that trials in this life do not cause us to despair. You know, one of the silent killers of Um, this season of COVID that we're in is not COVID itself, but suicide. In fact, you can go online and you can see that the suicide rates in many countries have gone up. In Japan, specifically, I mentioned this before, more people, almost three times as much people have died through suicide than COVID. And why is that? Because if this world is your only hope, and this world is all you have, then of course when this world and the trials of this world come upon you, you have no hope. And the only relief that you can have is to take your own life. That's why James connects trials to the life to come. Notice what he says: When you remain steadfast in your trials, when you have withstood the test, you'll receive a crown of life. Now, what is he talking about with the crown of life? This is an incredibly powerful imagery. In James day, whenever you, whenever you obtained a crown, you obtained a crown as a result of an incredible accomplishment. For instance, if you ran a race and you won, you would receive what is known as a laurel crown. They'll place that on your head. Or if you uh, fought a a fierce battle and you won, um, as a reward, they'll take this laurel crown and put it on your head. And how ornate the crown was, how big the crown was, how special this crown was. Sometimes they would put uh, gold lacing toward it and jewels on it, and they would place it on your head. The value of the crown was always connected to the accomplishment. And when James readers saw this and they said, wait a minute. If we maintained steadfastness through trials, we'll receive a crown of life. There's no way we could receive a crown of life. There's no amount of suffering that we can endure. There's no amount of pain that we can endure that's worthy to retain this crown of life. Immediately they would have understood that it were not for Christ, there is no way they could make, uh, receive this crown of life. And in the same way, when we read that if we maintain steadfastness amidst trial, we'll receive a crown of life. Immediately we should think there's no way we could to maintain or obtain a crown of life from our own efforts. It must be through Christ. It must be through Christ. Beloved, every trial that you go through in your life, Christ sustains you. He sustains you because he's faithful. And the crown of thorns that was placed on his head makes it possible for you and I to obtain the crown of life that's still yet to come. What is the Lord's truth? James is reminding us that the same righteousness that uh, the Lord requires is the same righteousness that he provides. And every trial that we go through, it is Christ sustaining us through it because there's no way we could sustain ourselves. But notice also the second thing. What happens when we give in to temptation? James tells us in verse number 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. What's James saying? James is saying that look, in the midst of trials, there are people, if they know that God sends trials and they end up sinning, they are tempted to blame God because they sin. Remember Adam and Eve? Uh, my children are fond of asking me every time I, uh, we read through the story of Adam and Eve. My children are fond of asking me, "God, why, uh, Daddy, why did God put the tree in the middle of the garden? Why, why would he tempt them like that? And I often tell them, I said, look, God isn't tempting them. God is testing them. They're in covenant with God, and God is waiting to see if they'd be faithful in the midst of being tested. God doesn't tempt anyone. So what happens immediately when Adam and Eve sinned? Adam looks at Eve. uh, When God comes to Adam and says, Adam, why have you done this? What's the first thing he did? Of course, he blamed Eve. Right? He said, Lord, if you didn't give me this beautiful woman who's believed. If you didn't give me her, I wouldn't have done this. And then he goes to Eve and says, Eve, why have you done this? And, said, and Eve immediately looks at the serpent and says, it's the serpent. If if the serpent, if you didn't create the serpent, none of this was gonna happen. And so what's happening in the narrative? The same thing that happens to you and I, whenever we are tested, whenever we go through trials. Oftentimes, if we fail in the midst of the trial, we blame God. That's what James is saying. Whenever we, are temp- whenever we go through trials and we fail to hold God and say, God, this is your fault. Guard your hearts from that because that's a temptation. We do it in our day. We do it through veiled comments like, I was born this way. That's why I sin in this manner. Or we say things like, this is just the way I am. Have you ever heard people say that? There was someone who I knew, uh, a godly man. I knew he was saved. But man, he just had an awful temper. And any time you went to talk to him about anything, he would just blow up. And finally, one day, I looked at him. I was like, brother, like... <laughs> You need to calm down. Like as a Christian, you can't be yelling and screaming at people. And he said, well, this is just the way I am. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's the way you choose to be. Don't blame God for your sin. That's what James is saying. Let none of us, when we blow up or lose our temper or say, oh, I'm just an aggressive person. No, you're not. You're choosing to be an aggressive person you weren't born that way. That's the way you choose to be. Now, look, don't miss what James is saying, because this is so important. James is saying that, look, when we are, te- when we are tempted, and notice the connection, the same word for test or trial is the same word for tempted. In other words, James is saying, look, Every trial that you're going through, every trial that God allows us in in your life, you are going to be tempted to sin. It's the exact same word, and he's making that connection. And notice what he's saying. There's a temptation that all of us have that when we're in the midst of a trial and we fail, we blame God. But God never causes us to sin. One New Testament scholar by the name of Doug Moo, I think, summed it up well. He said, God might test or prove his servants in order to strengthen their faith, but he never seeks to induce sin and destroy their faith. That's not what's happening. That's what James is saying here. But why do you and I sin? Notice verse number 14. We sin because each person, when he is tempted he is lured and enticed by his own desires. If you have the ESV, it should say own sinful desires or own evil desires. Don't miss what James is saying. James is saying that when you and I sin, it's because of the evil desires that's in us. Now, pause here for a moment. This is super important. In our day, there's a doctrine floating around, in which some people say that, look, the evil, sinful desires that we have in our hearts that come as a result of sin, that flow out of our sinful nature, that those aren't actually sin until we commit sin. It's called the doctrine of concupiscence. Come see me afterwards if you want to know how to spell that, okay? Takes me a while to. But but here's the point, right? There are some people who say, look, I can have a sinful desire, but as long as I don't act upon it, it's not sin, okay? This is a doctrine. You might say, well, pastor, why is that so important? Because today when we talk about the issue of homosexuality, And as we seek to minister to our brothers and sisters who are homosexuals or our brothers and sisters who struggle with some innate sin, this is one of the things that sometimes you might encounter. Someone would say, look, I I have this desire, but I don't act upon it. So desire is no okay. Look at this passage. Is that James is saying? No. In fact, Jesus said it even more explicitly. He says, look, If you lust after a woman, you've done what? Commit adultery in your heart. Why? Because the desire is the problem. And here's why. Everything starts at the level of desire. That's what James is saying here. Notice in verse number 14, the progression. He says, look, each person is tempted to sin... When he is lured and enticed by his own sinful desires. The word there is epithumia. It has the idea of the sinful desires that arise out of our hearts. If we deny that the desire is sinful, then we deny that the actions that flow out of that uh, desire is not sinful. That's the logical reasoning. That's why it's so important to understand that the natural desires that come out of our heart are sinful if they are out of accord with God's word. That's why this issue is so important. Because what are we trying to protect? We are trying to protect the nature of our hearts. If you do not acknowledge that your desires are sinful, nothing else that James says makes sense. Because he says it starts at the level of desire. When we are enticed by a desire, notice what happens in verse 15. Then the desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. Look, a lot of us don't like to think about this, but here's the reality of Scripture. Every evil desire that we have in our hearts, if it is not brought underneath the lordship of Christ, it will end in death. And so that's why our desires or acknowledging our sinful desires is so important. Now, I want to leave you with hope because that's what James leaves us with in verse 16 through 18. There are so many of us maybe here or elsewhere that struggle with evil desires. In fact, we all do. They just look differently. And sometimes we fight and wrestle against sin, and sometimes we give in, and we wonder, Pastor, can I ever overcome desires in my heart? And the answer is yes. And James tells us in verse 16 through 18, he says, "'Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. "'Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, "'coming down from the Father of lights "'with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change.'" First number 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of creatures. What is James saying? James is saying that our Lord, even in the midst of temptation and of trial, that he gives good gifts in order to sustain us. And to bring us forth by his truth so that we can still be a first, truth, uh, first fruits. Every single Jew, when they thought about trials or testing, immediately went to Genesis 22 and the story of Abraham's sacrifice of his son. And, and I could not imagine being Abraham asked to sacrifice my son. I have two sons, and I wouldn't sacrifice any of them, love them to pieces. But could you imagine being asked to sacrifice your son and going through that process, that agonizing process of thinking, I have to do this. And bound his son, laid him on the altar, and he puts his hand up. And just as he's about to sin, God stops him. God says no. But not only does God stop him, the Bible says that God provides a ram in the thicket. And a ram is just a sheep with horns, or so I'm told. But the point is, is that God didn't just stop him from sinning. God pictured that he will send his son one day to die for sin. And here's the cool thing about that story. The ram, the skin of the ram was used and died and placed over the 10th of meeting. And when Moses went into the, temp- the, the tent of meeting, the picture of the ram skin over the tent of meeting had this idea of covering and protection. And from Genesis 22 all the way through the Bible, the picture of the ram skin became this, uh, became this symbol of God's protection and provision of his people. And here's what James is saying here. That the good gift and the perfect gift that the Father gives is his Son. That he covers us and protects us from sin. That if you name the name of Christ, you will not be tempted or tested beyond what you're able to bear. And that even though we struggle and fight with sin and. In- life, we will not be consumed because we are covered by the blood of the lamb. The steadfastness that we have in the midst of trial is because of the lamb. And so for you and I as God's people, yes, we can live victoriously in this life, not because we win in every trial, not because we're sinless, but because we're covered by the good gift of God as seeing His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm thankful that even in the midst of trials and temptation, we could be reminded of that glorious truth that we can endure and remain steadfast in the midst of trial because of Your Son, because of Your steadfastness toward us, but also even when we sin we are covered and we are kept and we are maintained that the word of God reminds us that you will always make a way that your good gift and your perfect gift is seen in your son so that we can be a kind of first fruits thank you for the gospel thank you for the hope that James gives us that in the midst of trials we are sustained. In the midst of temptation, we are sustained. Not because of our goodness, but because of your goodness. Not because of our steadfastness, but because of your steadfastness. To the praise of your glorious grace. Amen and amen.